Chapter 59 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gershet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Second Stage of Civil Wars The Rule of Erling Skaka and Magnus Erlingsson. The difference in character between the kings Inge Krokrig, Sigurd Mund, and Øystein became very marked when they grew to manhood. Sigurd was tall and well built. He was of a jovial disposition and carried himself well among his men. But he was of a violent temper, perverse, capricious, imprudent, and hard to please. Øystein was also a well-built and athletic young man, but he was of an imperious disposition, had a violent temper, and was very covetous. The crippled Inge, on the other hand, was very meek and mild-tempered. He had also the advantage of being born in lawful wedlock. His very weakness and his gentle disposition attached to him a great number of powerful nobles who virtually ruled in his name. The most influential of his adherents was the powerful Gregorius Dogson, who reminds us of Erling Skjalgsson and Einar Tumberskjelver in earlier days. But while Erling and Einar had been the leaders of the old aristocracy in opposition to the king, Gregorius was the leader of a faction and acted as the king's representative. Inge's weakness proved to be his strength, and he became the most powerful and influential of the three kings. Sigurd and Øystein formed a secret alliance against him, and agreed to dethrone him because he was a cripple. But the alert Gregorius Dagson frustrated their plans. With King Inge he hastened to Bergen, and shortly after King Sigurd also arrived. A thing was assembled, and Gregorius appeared in gilt helmet with a great number of armed men. Inge told the people of the plot, and asked their help, which was cheerfully promised. Sigurd also addressed the thing, and said that the report of the plot was wholly unfounded, and that it had been circulated by Gregorius Dagson to hurt him and Øystein. But he hoped that he would soon meet Gregorius in such a way that his gilt helmet should roll in the dust. No hostilities seem, however, to have been seriously contemplated, but bloody encounters which took place a few days afterwards between the followers of the two kings precipitated a general fight, in which King Sigurd was killed. Some days later, King Øystein arrived in Bergen with thirty ships, but no further hostilities occurred at this time. Inge went to Trondhjem, and Øystein sailed southward to Viken. Shortly after this meeting in Bergen, Øystein made an unsuccessful attempt to surprise and capture Gregorius Dagson, and as a result the relations between the two kings grew constantly more strained. Inge succeeded in winning over many of Øystein's most influential adherents, and Øystein, who was less popular, revenged himself by committing many dastardly acts. Finally, in 1156, open hostilities commenced, and both kings gathered forces for a decisive struggle. Inge collected eighty ships, while Øystein had only forty-five, and when the two fleets met, most of Øystein's ships deserted, and he was compelled to flee without fighting a battle. The following year he was captured and put to death. No reasonable objection could now be made to Inge Krokrig as sole king of Norway. According to the rule of succession, the reign of the joint kings should be a single reign, which should continue so long as any one of them lived. The sons of the deceased kings could, therefore, not rightfully succeed to the throne as long as King Inge lived. He had, moreover, been very popular and had won the support of the greater part of the people and the aristocracy because of his mild rule and gentle disposition. But some of the followers of King Øystein refused to submit to him, and chose Hakon Herdebred, 
the illegitimate ten-year-old son of Sigurd Mund, as their candidate for the throne. The struggle was no longer waged for any principle. It was not even a contest between rival candidates for the throne, but a feud between hostile and rival factions of the aristocracy. The leaders of King Inge's party were Gregorius Dogson and Erling Skaka. Among the leaders of the comparatively small faction which still remained in opposition were Sigurd of Reyr, a personal enemy of Gregorius Dagsson, and Eindride Unger, who had partaken in Ragnvald Jarl's crusade together with Erling Skaka, but the two had parted as bitter enemies. The struggle was kept up by such rivalries and animosities between ambitious nobles, and new pretenders were put forward in the interest of the contending factions. Professor Sars says, in earlier days, the kings had created the parties, at least in an external way, but now the king was created by the party. The king had ceased to be anything but a name. The aristocracy had gained full control, and the only issue was which faction should wield the greater power. King Inge Krokrig sought to strengthen his position as far as possible. He stationed Gregorius Dagson in Viken to defend the southern districts against Haakon Herdebreid and his party. He carried on negotiations with the king of Denmark, and succeeded in having his chaplain, Oystein Erlandsson, elected Archbishop of Trondheim. The new archbishop was a man of extraordinary ability, and could wield great influence in his behalf in that part of the kingdom. Haakon Herdebreid's party, which to begin with was quite small, had sought refuge across the Swedish border, and when they made an attempt to capture Konghella, they were defeated by Gregorius Dagsson but they soon advanced into Trøndelagen, where they received reinforcements, and Haakon Herdebred was proclaimed king over one-third of Norway, to which he was regarded as being entitled as the heir of his father, King Sigurd Mund. His chance of success now rapidly improved. In 1161, Gregorius Dagsson fell in a skirmish against Haakon's followers at Bevja, Bevera, in Bohuslän, a severe blow to Inge's party. The saga states that when Inge heard of Gregorius' death, he shed tears, and said, The man has fallen who has been my best friend, and who has done the most to preserve my kingdom for me. But I have always thought that we should not long be parted. This foreboding proved prophetic. In February of the same year, while Inge was in Oslo celebrating the marriage of his brother Orm Kongsbrother to Ragnar Nikolas' daughter, the widow of King Oystein, Hawkins suddenly marched against the city. A battle was fought on the ice of the fjord near Oslo, in which King Inge fell at the age of twenty-six. The able and ambitious Erling Skaka now became leader of Inge's party. He belonged to one of the most powerful families, and was married to Christina, the daughter of Sigurd the Crusader and his queen Malmfrid. He had won renown as a crusader, and was at this moment the most sagacious and powerful noble in the kingdom. When he had heard of King Inge's death, he called a meeting of the party leaders in Bergen to lay plans for the future. They were not willing to submit to Haakon Herdebreid, who counted among his followers many of their bitterest enemies. They agreed, therefore, to keep the party together, and promised under oath faithfully to support each other. The most difficult task was to find a suitable candidate for the throne around whom the party could rally. In casting about among several not very available candidates, they finally selected the five-year-old Magnus Erlingsson, the son of Erling Skaka and his wife Christina, daughter of Sigurd the Crusader. 
but by this choice they set aside all rules of succession. Magnus, the son of Erling Skakke, was not a king's son, and had no right whatever to the throne. This choice, in flagrant violation of the law, was dictated by Erling's own ambition and by party interests. In order to gain additional support, Erling hastened to Denmark to negotiate with King Valdemar, who promised to aid him on condition that the province of Viken should be ceded to Denmark, and Erling, in his eager desire for power, committed the treasonable act of subscribing to this condition. While Erling was absent, Haakon Herdebride was proclaimed king of Norway at the Øreting in Trøndelagen, and Sigurd of Rare, one of his chief supporters, was made Jarl. Haakon stationed himself at Tunsberg, and sent Jarl Sigurd to Konghelle to guard the southern districts of Norway against Erling, but on his return from Denmark Erling seized Tunsberg without difficulty. Haakon retreated in haste to Trøndelagen, and Jarl Sigurd joined him there soon afterward. In the spring of 1162, Haakon equipped both fleet and army, and prepared to meet Erling Skakke. He advanced southward along the coast, gathering men and ships in the adjoining districts, but at Vey, in Romsdal, he quite unexpectedly encountered Erling's whole fleet. A battle was fought near the island of Sekken in the Romsdalsfjord, where Haakon fell and his forces suffered a complete defeat. Haakon was only fifteen years of age, and the saga describes him as playful and boyish, tall, broad-shouldered, and good-looking. After the battle, Erling Skokka sailed to Nidaros and summoned the Urething, where his son Magnus was proclaimed king of Norway. Haakon's party was defeated, but it was not crushed, and as the old royal line was not extinct, they were able to find a new candidate for the throne who had some legitimate claim to it. This was Sigurd Sigurdsson, another illegitimate son of Sigurd Mund, who seems to have been a mere child. He was staying in Uplandena with his foster father, Marcus of Skog, and is generally well known as Sigurd Marcus Foster. But now, as before, they were unable to cope with the redoubtable Erling Skaka. In 1163, he defeated and slew Sigurd Jarl in a battle at Rie, northwest of Tunsberg, and shortly after he captured Marcus of Skog and the young King Sigurd, and caused them both to be executed. But Erling saw that his son Magnus would find it difficult to maintain himself on the throne as a mere usurper. It was necessary to create the impression that he was a lawful king, and he hoped to secure for him an appearance of legitimacy by having him anointed and crowned. This would give him the support of the church, which would thereby officially approve his elevation to the throne. For this purpose he entered into negotiations with Archbishop Eustin Erlandsson, but the sagacious and powerful prelate drove a hard bargain, and granted his request only after Erling had subscribed to conditions which destroyed both the power and the dignity of the crown. In the summer of 1164, a council of magnates was assembled at Bergen consisting of the archbishop, the bishops, and a certain number of representative and influential men from each Logdurma. The newly elected bishop, Bran Simonson of Holar, and the great chieftain Jan Loftesson of Oda, in Iceland, were also present. Before this assembly, the seven-year-old Magnus Erlingsson was crowned king of Norway, and all questions regarding the succession to the throne were now discussed and settled. King Magnus had to subscribe to the following conditions. He surrendered himself and his kingdom for all times to St. Olaf, i.e. to the church, and promised to rule as his vicar and vassal. As a sign of submission, 
his crown and those of his successors, should be placed as an offering on the altar of the cathedral in Nidaros at their death. By this agreement, the king virtually became a feudal tenant under the church. But his influence and independence would be still further limited by enforcing the new rules of succession which were now adopted. These almost shattered the old principles of an hereditary monarchy, since the king in many instances was to be elected, and the church was given full control of the election. When the king died, a council of magnates should be summoned to meet in Trondheim to determine whether the heir to the throne possessed the required qualifications. This assembly should consist of the archbishop, his suffragan bishops, the abbots, the hirdsjarer, and the herd, and twelve men from each bishopric, to be appointed by the bishops. The king's eldest legitimate son should succeed to the throne as sole king, but if the assembly found him to be unworthy, or otherwise disqualified, that legitimate son which the assembly considered best qualified should become king. If the king had no legitimate son, they might choose the nearest heir, or anyone else whom they considered well qualified. The choice should be decided by a majority vote, provided the archbishop and the bishops consented. The arrangement that the king's oldest legitimate son should inherit the throne was a good feature, as it did away with the most flagrant fault of the old system, that any illegitimate son or any bold adventurer might aspire to the crown. But this single good feature was vitiated by giving the assembly, or in fact the clergy, the power of deciding who was worthy or qualified to become king. This enabled them to exclude at will any legitimate heir to the throne, while the election of a new candidate was delegated to them. The king of Norway, the successor of Harald Harfagra and St. Olaf, could scarcely be reduced to a more impotent shadow. The aristocracy and the clergy, who had now joined hands in their effort to divest the crown of all real power, could rejoice in a complete triumph. Archbishop Oystein Erlendsson sprang from a noble family in Trindelagen. He was related to the powerful Arnunga family, and through them also with the royal family itself. According to the standards of those times, he was well-educated, and there can be no doubt that he had studied in foreign lands for many years, though no record is found of it. He was in every way a chieftain, a gifted and ambitious man who set his mind on the accomplishing of great things. When he was chosen archbishop in 1157, he went to Italy, as it seems, to get the pall from the pope, but he must have encountered some difficulty, as he was not consecrated till 1161. The delay may have been caused by the struggle between Alexander III and Victor IV, who were rival candidates for the papal throne. Pope Adrian IV died in 1159, and Alexander III was elected by a majority of the cardinals, but Emperor Frederick Barbarossa would not sanction his election, and caused Victor IV to be chosen. A bitter fight was waged by the two popes, but Alexander III was quite generally regarded as the true pope. Even the new antipopes chosen after the death of Victor IV were finally forced to withdraw. In Italy and elsewhere in Europe, Oystein had seen the Roman Church in all its outward splendor, and he returned to Norway with a firm resolve that the cathedral church of his own archdiocese of Nidaros should betoken by its outward appearance the dignity and power of the Church of Norway. The Christ Church which Olaf Kyrre had built was too plain and small, and he immediately commenced to reconstruct it. He began the work by rebuilding the transepts in the Anglo-Norman style in vogue at the time. A great architectural work was thus begun, which led to the erection of the magnificent Trondheim Cathedral, 
the grandest structure ever built in the Scandinavian north. In order to get the necessary means for so ambitious an undertaking, he increased in many unusual ways the revenues of his diocese. His income grew with the building, and the taxes were constantly increased. He made the regulation that the taxes paid to the church should henceforth be paid in pure silver, not in coin, which had been debased. This nearly doubled his income. He shipped grain to Iceland without paying export duty, and infringed in other ways on the royal prerogative. Erling Skaka was much displeased, but he had to acquiesce in these arbitrary innovations. This was, no doubt, one of the conditions on which the archbishop finally agreed to crown Magnus Erlingsson at the assembly of magnates in Bergen in 1164. Erling, who controlled the crown lands and the royal estates, found a compensation by driving his opponents into exile and confiscating their estates. When Magnus Erlingsson was crowned, King Valdemar of Denmark sent messengers to Norway to demand the district of Viken, which Erling Skakke had promised in return for the aid which he had given him. But Erling gave an evasive answer. The people of the district would have to speak for themselves, he said. When the Borger thing was assembled, the people declared loudly that they would never consent to being transferred to Denmark. Valdemar was very wroth when he discovered Erling Skakke's deceitfulness, and as Erling's personal enemies encouraged Valdemar to attack him, he sent spies to Norway to learn what the popular sentiment was. They came as pilgrims to Nidaros, and many of Erling's opponents promised to aid Valdemar. When Erling found this out, he seized those who had implicated themselves and punished them most severely. Valdemar made an expedition to Norway in 1165 and visited Sarpsborg and Tunsberg. But when he found that the people were almost unanimously opposed to Danish overlordship, he returned home without attempting to forcibly occupy the district. Hawken Herdebride's party in the southern districts put a new pretender in the field against Erling and his son Magnus. This was Olaf Ugeva, the son of King Eystein's daughter Maria. He gathered formidable bands of followers called Hetusfeiner, who avoided pitched battles but levied tribute on the people for their maintenance and exercised great power in the southeastern districts and in Viken. At one time, Erling himself barely escaped falling into their hands. These bands were the forerunners of the Berkebeiner, Birchlegs, who were to play such an important part in future events. Olaf Ugeva and his followers sought support in Denmark, and Erling, who feared the powerful King Valdemar, was evidently alarmed and eagerly grasped what seemed to him an opportunity to avert the danger. While Valdemar was absent on an expedition against the Wends, Burris, one of his vassals, a descendant of King Svan Estridsson, formed a treasonable plot to overthrow him. He negotiated with Erling, who promised to attack Denmark with the Norwegian fleet. The plot was revealed in time, and Valdemar called Burris before him and accused him of treason. Burris denied the charge, but the king kept him in custody until the Norwegian fleet arrived on the coast of Denmark. This proved his guilt, and he was imprisoned as a traitor. Erling captured some Danish ships at Deersaw in Jutland, plundered Grindhurg, Grenau, and arrived before Copenhagen. But the vigilant bishop Absalon met him with a strong force, and Erling did not attack the town. A peace was concluded between him and the bishop, and after an unsuccessful attack on Holland, Erling returned home. King Valdemar decided to punish the Norsemen for this attack on his kingdom. 
The following spring he sailed with a large fleet to Viken, where, according to Saxo Grammaticus, he was well received by the people, no doubt by the adherents of Olaf Ugeva. At Tunsberg the townsmen even marched in procession to meet him. But Erling arrived with a fleet, and Valdemar was forced to take to sea. His men became mutinous and wished to return home, but the voyage was continued along the coast until they came so far north that at the summer solstice the nights were as light as the day, and one can read at midnight the finest writings without difficulty, sagely remarks the learned Saxo. It may be supposed that they were somewhere on the southwestern coast of Norway. As he was short of provisions, and as the resistance and ill will on the part of his men continued to trouble him, he sailed back to Denmark, but for the future he laid an embargo on all trade between Denmark and Norway. Although hostilities had ceased, a state of war still existed between the two countries. But worse than the war was the interruption of the trade with Denmark, on which the southern districts of Norway were especially dependent. The people in Viken demanded that peace should be concluded with King Valdemar, and Erling sent his wife Christina, a cousin of Valdemar, to Denmark, ostensibly on a visit, but really for the purpose of quietly gaining information as to the prevailing sentiment. She was well received by the king, and Erling sent Bishop Helge of Oslo to negotiate peace. Bishop Stephanus of Uppsala also became his representative. Erling was summoned to Denmark, and the peace was concluded at Ringsted in 1170. According to the Heimskringla, the district of Viken was given to Valdemar, who in return made Erling a jarl, and gave him the district as a fief under the Danish crown. Through his selfish and unpatriotic policy, Erling Skaka had alienated a part of the kingdom of Norway, something which had not happened since the days of his prototypes, Haakon Jarl and his sons. The authority exercised over the district by King Valdemar was purely nominal, it is true, but Erling's system of statesmanship was of the most pernicious sort, and might have led to very serious consequences if he and his party had remained in power. After he had made peace with Denmark, he guarded eagerly against all pretenders, and with the eye and spirit of a tyrant he sought to exterminate the family of Harald Gila. This aroused the hostility of the Swedish Jarl Berger Brosa, who was married to Harald Gila's daughter Bergeta, and henceforth his opponents found encouragement and support in Sweden. No one wielded a mightier sword than Erling Skaka. He combined craft and resourcefulness with great energy and courage, but he had the tyrant's fear, and as his heart grew harder and his methods bloodier, his real power decreased, and an opponent mightier than he arose to overthrow him. End of chapter 59